The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 27. And the message I'd like to bring you today is the second part of the one I began just a couple of weeks ago before I went away to the conference. And the title of this message is Agonizing Admission. And this is about what happens to a heart that is just overburdened by guilt. And there is no release of that guilt. There is no way to get out from under the guilt or to assuage it. And there are different ways that people deal with the guilt in their lives. Some of them will blame their troubles on others. Uh, Some offer excuses in which they believe their own lies. There are some people in dealing with guilt that they turn to self-punishment. The story is legendary about Martin Luther, who was so consumed with the guilt of his sin that he actually resorted to self-torture. And then there are others that take the ultimate step to deal with guilt. They can't handle it. It weighs so heavily on their minds and they're under such mental suffering because of it that the only way that they feel that they can get out from under their guilt is to take their own lives. And this is actually the the story that we have before us today, that Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord, was so, had such a guilty conscience over what he had done that he actually committed suicide. Judas couldn't do other things. He couldn't blame his guilt on others. Uh, He was the one who gave Jesus up to his enemies. He was the one that was responsible for putting him in the way of a death sentence. And he knew that that was wrong. And as we look at this today, he declared Jesus to be innocent of all crimes. There was no instance of any kind of wrongdoing in Jesus. And so Judas knew that he'd done a just a terrible thing in betraying the Lord. So he tried to change the outcome of what he had done. He went to the leaders, the leaders of the the Jews that had had this illegal trial over Jesus, and he went to them expecting that if they were honest enough, that if he said, well, I wasn't telling the truth about this, that Jesus was actually innocent, there is no sin in him, he's never done anything wrong. Judas thought that if I could just go and tell these people about that, then they'll change their minds and they'll understand that uh, there is no guilt for which to, or there is no, no crime for which to charge him with. He's not guilty of death. But when he came to the priest, he found that they didn't care at all about his problem. They were unconcerned about the mental torture that he was going through because they had what they wanted. They wanted to kill Jesus, and Judas was the tool to get him. So Judas had just handed them a gift... They'd never been able to take him before, and Judas provided the way that Jesus could be charged falsely and then led to his death. Now, when Judas then heard the verdict that was given in that trial, uh, and he saw that the Sanhedrin, the court of the Jews, was not going to change their mind, they had no change of plans after his admission that Jesus was innocent, that guilt, that agonizing guilt led to his death. Now, if you look at the scriptures, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read scripture, and uh, you're, you're probably going to need to stand because you're going to be sitting a long time today. Matthew 27, verse number 1. When the morning was come, 
all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying... And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reading of your word, and uh, help us today, Lord, as we expound on this text to learn what your holy word has to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are talking about... An awful act here today, the act of suicide. And there's some who argue about whether there are many acts of suicide that are recorded in the Bible. Uh, For instance, Saul and his armor bearer come to our mind. Saul killed himself. We also think about Samson when he stood there in that great temple of Dagon and he pulled down that temple. And as he did, he took his own life and the lives of thousands of God's enemies. But when we think about those, those are more considered to be acts of war than they are actually suicides. Uh, Saul knew that he was going to be captured and that his body would be mutilated by his enemies. So he decided he wanted to take his own life before that could happen. Samson, in his last act of vengeance on those who had gouged out his eyes, stood there and he pulled down that great temple and took his own life. And so we put those things rather into the category of acts of war rather than acts of suicide. In the Bible, we actually only find that there are two acts of suicide. One of those is in the Old Testament, the other in the New. The one in the Old Testament was a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a counselor to King David, and he actually switched sides and became a counselor for Absalom, who was trying to take the throne away from David. And it's kind of interesting as we look at these that both of these acts of suicide, both of Ahithophel and of Judas, were in connection with those who betrayed their friends. Ahithophel was the friend of David and he turned against him and began to counsel with his enemy. But then when Absalom uh, would not take the counsel of Ahithophel, Ahithophel then had no friends. He had nobody to turn to on either side. And so... He took his own life. And then in the New Testament, of course, the one who committed suicide is Judas, the one we're talking about today. He also betrayed a friend. And then another interesting thing to look at uh, in comparison between Ahithophel and Judas is the people that they betrayed. Ahithophel betrayed David. Now, very early in David's life, when Saul wanted to kill him, Jonathan, his son, came to him and said, Why would you want to kill David? Why would you slay innocent blood? He referred to David as being one who was innocent. Why would you kill David? 
Judas said the same thing about Jesus Christ. He said, he is innocent. Both of them betrayed innocent people. They turned on their friends, and both of them, because of that betrayal, committed acts of suicide. And the interesting thing about this is that David was called innocent blood, and also Jesus Christ was called the innocent one. David was the one who was promised to have an everlasting kingdom, and Jesus is the one who was promised to sit upon the throne of David forever. It's just kind of interesting when you look at only two acts of suicide in the Bible, and both of them refer to someone or had to do with someone who was betrayed, who was innocent of any crimes against anyone else. Now, I want to catch you up just a little bit on the first part of the message that I began a couple of weeks ago, and we'll do this just very briefly. We see in verse number 1 that there was a night verdict of execution reached by the clandestine court of the high priest, and so Jesus was then brought into the day court of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And the day court is what made that verdict in the night court official. It made it what was done, what was done illegally in the night something that was stamped and given credibility by the day court of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Then in verse number 2, it tells us that they bound Jesus and they took him to Pilate, where hopefully Pilate would carry out a death sentence against him. Now, the Jews had accused Jesus of blasphemy, and that was a capital offense under the Jewish law. Jesus could be put to death under Jewish law, but the Jews no longer had the ability to put anyone to death. Execution was taken out of their hands. And so they took him to Pilate to be charged. But Pilate and the Romans cared nothing at all about blasphemy. That didn't bother them. And so the charge against Jesus would have to change. When he went into the Roman court, he was accused of sedition, of trying to raise an army or whatever to overthrow uh, Rome and to make himself a king. And so that charge was changed so that Pilate would be able to crucify him. Now, when Judas saw all of this happen, that Jesus was condemned to die, which is something that he thought would never happen. I mean, apparently he thought that they would discover that Jesus truly was innocent. They wouldn't crucify him. But when he came back and he made his confession that Jesus was innocent, this magnitude of the awful thing that he'd done, when he saw that they were not going to let Jesus go, the magnitude of that began to strike Judas, and his conscience began to bother him because he knew that there was no just cause for which Jesus should be put to death. And so he caught up with the chief priests and the elders at some point, probably at the point that they were transitioning Jesus from the Jewish court into the Roman court, and there Judas stood before them and he said, I have sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood. And the second thing that we looked at was the insistence of innocence by Judas. There was no doubt that Jesus was innocent. And the chief priests and the elders, they already knew that, and so this admission meant nothing to them. If you remember, they'd already hired false witnesses against Jesus because they couldn't find any cause to put him to death. So when Judas came back and he said, I have betrayed the innocent blood, they weren't interested at all in what Judas had to say. His innocence made no difference to them. 
But what we really need to recognize here is that the one who knew him the very best, the one who saw Jesus in his private moments as well as the public moments, the one who had the most to gain if Jesus was truly guilty, the one who actually could satisfy his conscience and put away his guilt, kept looking at this and thinking about it and running it over and over again in his mind, and he could not think of one single instance in the public or the private life of Jesus Christ where he could be accused of any type of a crime. And so when Judas said that he was innocent, for one fleeting moment, there was no better testimony of the sinless nature of Jesus Christ that could be given. And that's because the bitterest enemy that was against him could not find a single thing that was wrong with Jesus. Now what Judas knew was that he must bear the same fate for false testimony. The Jewish law said that he would have to be put to death. So I think that Judas went back and he gave that money back, trying to change everything so that the guilt would be taken away and no one would be the worse for wear. All of it would go away. He would declare Christ's innocence and that would be the end of it. He He would clear his conscience and thereby he would stop the crucifixion. Well, we looked at that. He came back to them. And so the third thing that we talked about was remorse and not repentance. That Judas' admission is not what we call evangelical repentance. Now, the translation of the Greek word here in the text that is repent is unfortunate for us in the King James Version because it's not the same word for repent that we find in other places of Scripture. This is not what we call evangelical repentance. And that's where a person comes confessing his guilt before God and telling God, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you and then changing his ways and going in a different way, putting his faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what we find here. Here we find Judas in an act of guilt. His conscience is seriously bothering him. So he never went to Jesus to beg forgiveness. And his act is so much unlike Peter that we read about before because Peter betrayed the Lord. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitter tears of godly sorrow and repentance. And so he returned to Christ and and Jesus blessed him and gave him a commission to feed the church of God. But Judas never had those kinds of thoughts. He didn't go to Jesus. He returned to the chief priest. He went to the elders and not to Christ. And so what Judas tried to do was he tried to make his own redemption, his own method of redemption. His method is to pay back this blood money. And he tried to undo his crime. But the problem is his crime is not against the Jewish court. It is a crime against God. And this is true of all of us, that none of us can clear ourselves of the guilt of breaking God's law. All of us are guilty against God. We can't clear ourselves by any act that we can do. We have to come to Christ and be washed in His blood to be forgiven of our sins. Now, there is just a a little bit of an interesting twist to this. Origen, who was one of the early Roman Catholic theologians, said that Judas rushed to suicide. He was in a hurry to kill himself in order that he might meet Jesus in Hades, and there he could ask Jesus for forgiveness. Well, I wouldn't put much stock in that because the Bible makes no such claims as that, and neither did Jesus descend into Hades to pardon anyone. Now, any idea that the time that Jesus was in the tomb, that his spirit went into hell, is a figment of the imagination. 
Now, when people die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. There aren't any chances after you die. You go to heaven or you go to hell. It's always been that way. And so Judas never received any uh, forgiveness of sins in hell, and neither does anybody else. Now, you have to make these decisions. You have to come to Christ before you die because you're not going to have a chance to do that afterwards. So Judas did not repent. There's no repentance after death. He simply came with a guilty conscience, and he couldn't satisfy that conscience by any act of his own. And so his only relief was to take his life. He made an outward change, but not an inward change. And that's the substance of real repentance. Now today, we want to step a little bit further into this story. And next, we're going to look at the guilt of greed. What is the sin that drove the betrayal of Christ? Well, we see it in verse number 3. It's 30 pieces of silver. Let's look back, if you would, at chapter 26 and verse number 15. Judas is here speaking to the chief priest. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 15. And said unto them, that is, Judas said unto these priests, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. So Judas said, What are you going to give me for this? What is it, what can I get if I turn Jesus over to you? And the price was not very much. It was not what he hoped. The choice was between a small amount and nothing at all. And it really didn't speak to what Jesus was worth. You remember earlier in that chapter that Mary of Bethany had poured out a very expensive vial of ointment on Jesus, so expensive that it was worth a year's wages, and that couldn't value Jesus. So surely we can't say 30 pieces of silver is what... Jesus was worth. But when you're greedy, like Judas was, then there's nothing like having two coins to rub together. Judas was already well established in the path of greed because what he had done as the one who held the money bag or the one who was the treasurer of this small group of disciples, he'd already stolen money that was intended for the poor. So he's a very greedy person. And and I think that when Paul wrote this particular scripture in 1 Timothy, that he must have had Judas in mind, or very well could have had him in mind, because Paul wrote, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And you might note that that word perdition is actually used of Judas. He's called the son of perdition. And Paul said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The worst evil that was ever done in the history of man was because of the love of money. It makes you wonder how that money could ever become a centerpiece in the Christian religion. Now, it's not, of course, but that's not what you hear today, is it? I mean, you hear a lot of preaching about money. Prosperity preachers preach to you about money and what you can gain if you come to Jesus Christ. And what they do is they make money a major plank of the Christian faith. In fact, the fastest-growing sect of Christianity today is the Word of Faith movement and the charismatic movement that where people are so much in love with money and the greed of money that they think that's how they are approved by God, that if you have a lot of money, that means God's favor is upon you. 
And these are not people that are actually preaching Christ. They're preaching a false gospel that puts Christ to shame. They betray his innocent blood because money is not an indicator of your relationship with God. And people who preach these thing, kinds of things, they don't even have as much integrity as Judas because they're not going to bring any money back. They steal from the poor all of the time. The poorest of the people are the ones who are generally in those types of religions and they give all the money they can hoping to get rich and they're not going to get any money back, I can promise you that. Well, greed is what drove Judas and in the end, the money couldn't satisfy him. And money is never going to satisfy any person now, when you don't know Jesus Christ, money's not your answer. And so you shouldn't look for money. It's not going to alleviate any of the guilt that you have. And Judas found that out, and when he learned that, he wouldn't touch this money any longer. He had to take it back. He wanted to give it back to these chief priests. Well, then we look at the reaction of the priests when he brought that money back. They heard Judas' agonizing admission. And so what were their thoughts about the innocence of Jesus? Fifthly, we see hypocrisy, not holiness. Verse number 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, that was when Jesus was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. Now what reaction from these priests who are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. Oh, here is one, Judas, who was a tortured son. He came back to them and he said, I have sinned, I have done an awful thing, I have betrayed innocent blood. And what was their answer to him? Was there any help from those who are commanded to be the shepherds of Israel, the ones who are to serve with holiness and righteousness? What did they do? Well, here is Judas who is twisting in the throes of this awful crime. And what's their response to him? They said, it's your problem. You deal with it. It's your problem. We don't want to have anything to do with that. You deal with it. So they weren't going to fix anything. Just like Jesus said in chapter 23, he said, these priests, these elders of the people, they're good at binding burdens on people, but they're no good at all for relieving the burdens. Listen to this very appropriate comment by John Butler. He said, the very men who encouraged Judas in his evil are now no help when Judas is in great pain from his sin. Those who seduce people to sin will have no sympathy or help for those who are sorrowing and suffering from the sin they were induced into doing. Bartenders throw out the drunks who they encourage to drink. You do not see Budweiser building rescue missions. But it's their product which ruins men and fills the rescue missions across our country. The gambling casinos do not give charity to those who have been ruined by the casino's evil business. The man who seduces a woman into immoral activity will often forsake her when she is pregnant and needing support. Companions in evil will be no comfort to you when the adverse conditions of evil descend upon you. These evil companions will flee from you quickly. It's like the axiom, laugh and the class laughs with you, but stay after school alone. And how typical this is of Israel's shepherds. You remember the prophets in the Old Testament? They said, there are these priests of Israel, they are like dead dogs that cannot bark. 
So they weren't going to help anybody out of sin. They were too deep into sin themselves, and the drowning are not much help to the drowning. And folks, this is actually maddening to see what goes on in our churches today. That the shepherds of the people, the pastors of the people, they don't really care about the problems that their people are going through. No, they're happy to help you to praise Jesus. And they'll talk about praise Jesus and pass the plate. And they'll, and they'll take up the money, but they're no help at all to help you with your spiritual condition. They'll help you to fill out your pledge cards for sure. But they're not going to deal with the root of evil. And the issue that we're talking about here is sin. It's sin that drives all of this. This is where the feelings of guilt come from. This is where all the dissatisfaction that we have in our lives is, it comes from. It's the heartache and the misery. All of this stems from the fact that we are sinners against God and something has to be done about that sin problem. And these priests who should have been holy and should have recognized that, who should have been able to help Judas when he came back to them, they said, it's your problem. Oh, nobody wants to deal with sin anymore, do they? You don't hear preachers preaching about sin any longer. But if a preacher won't tell you this, that first and foremost in your life, what you must do is deal with sin, that you must repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ, if a preacher does not deal with that, then he is an enemy of your soul. He is an enemy of righteousness. And there's no need for me to be soft and soothing about this. Some don't like what I have to say about it, but there's no need to be soft about it because what are you going to say about somebody who's complicit in sending souls to hell? Oh, this is what we have to preach. We are sinners against God. We need to be forgiven of sin. We have guilt and it has to be taken away. But you can go to churches and you can listen to their foolishness. You can bask in all the feel-good sermons and you'll go away just like Judas. You go away with no relief. And you'll go to the same place that Judas went. And I'm telling you folks that the majority of our churches in our area and across our country are places of spiritual suicide. And you go there at your own peril. And so how shameful it is that these men are not equipped to deal with sin. Well, what is it that worried them? Well, the thing that worried them was that Judas brought back the money. Now, they had hoped to be done with all of this, to have this affair out of sight and out of mind. Then they can go back to their business and do what they always did. And whatever little prick of conscience they might have had by of crucifying Jesus and accusing him falsely, whatever little bit of conscience they might have had, that would soon go away. They would forget about it all. But they can't. Because Judas brought back the money. And so here they have a reminder of what they'd done. Judas came back. He said, Jesus is innocent. And they wanted nothing to do with that admission. They didn't want to take the money. And this is probably the only time they ever refused any money. They didn't want to take this money. Because if they did, they would also have to admit that Jesus was innocent. Now they know something about this money, don't they? So they said to Judas, you see to that. That's your problem. He couldn't even give the money back to them. They didn't want to deal with it. Well, well, Judas was not going to keep it. And he was about to make it their problem. They are going to have to deal with this money. Now look at this very clever move that he makes in verse number 5. At least the first part of it is very clever. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now that first part was a clever move because he forced them to deal with this. He made this their problem. 
Now, I've read, done a lot of reading about this, and I find it interesting that when it says that he went into the temple and he cast down this money, that the word that's used for temple here is not the ordinary word. Now, sometimes when you, or most of the time, when you read temple in the Scriptures, it's talking about the superstructure, and it's talking about the environs of the temple, it's talking about all the courtyards, it's talking about that whole temple complex. But the word that's used here is not that particular word. This is a word that means the sanctuary. Now, in places like Matthew 4, 5, you remember that the devil tempted Jesus, and he took him up, the Bible says, on the pinnacle of the temple. And that word for temple there means the complex, the total environs of that area. He took him on top of the temple. This is not that word. I think it's interesting. Now, you remember what it was like on the inside of the temple, how the Bible describes that, how that you went into the temple, and there you entered into the place that's called the holy place, and there is where you would find a table of showbread on one side, you would find uh, the golden lampstand on the other side, you would find the altar of incense directly in front of you, and then just beyond the altar of incense there hung a veil. And behind that veil is another compartment that's called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And that's where in former times, before the time of Jesus, back before the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Ark of the Covenant was in that very special place of the Holy of Holies. And that's where God met with his people on the mercy seat that was above the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody could ever go into that particular area except the high priest. And he went in there twice on one particular day of the year. No other time was anyone allowed to go into that compartment. So that holy, most holy place, that's verboten. Now the word that's used here describes the inside of the temple. And there is no ordinary Jew that was ever allowed to go inside of the temple. Now you think about coming to church. All of us enter into the doors of the church and we can all sit here and listen to a message and all of that. A Jew never did that. A Jew never went inside of the temple. Only priests are allowed to go into the temple. Now what Judas did here, he went into the temple. Only priests can go there, but by this point, this doesn't bother Judas very much. He's already betrayed Christ. That's the worst that he can do. So going into the temple, that doesn't bother him. So this is what he must have done. He must have strolled past the court of the Gentiles, which would be the outer part of the temple area, past the court of the women, which is a little closer, just past the point where the altars are, and he entered into the temple itself, and there he cast the money onto the, onto the floor of the sanctuary. Now what did that do? Well, there's only certain people that can go in there. That's the priest. And so who has to retrieve the money? the priest. And so they had to deal with this money. It's tainted money. And they say, well, we're not going to put this back into the treasury. Now, it's very interesting. They took the money out of the treasury to pay Judas, but they wouldn't put it back. Why? Verse 6 tells us, and the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury. Why? Because it is the price of blood. Now here we see another of their infamous meetings. They called a meeting to decide, what are we going to do with this money? And they said, it can't go back into the treasury because it is the price of blood. Now what an admission that we see from them. They say, this money's the price of blood. And who is it that paid the bribe to make it a price of blood? It was them. 
They betrayed, I mean, they, they paid the money to betray innocent blood. Now, th this, folks, really, it's almost too bizarre to be true. Because in their deranged reasoning, they say we can pay a bribe to cause an innocent person to be murdered, but we can't take that money if we receive it back and put it into the treasury because it's unlawful. Well, that makes your head swim trying to figure that out. Well, the same thing happened when they delivered Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. Remember, they took Jesus right up to the judgment hall and they wouldn't go in. And the reason they wouldn't go in is because... Pilate was a Gentile, and it was right before Passover. So they're not going to go into the judgment hall of Pilate and be defiled before Passover. But it doesn't make any difference if they deliver the innocent man who they're about to murder. Such reasonings. And we, we would sit and we think, well, that's, that's crazy stuff. Who would do things like this? But we really ought not to be puzzled at all because people do all sorts of crazy things in the name of religion. Now, this is the difference, then, between being guilty and innocent. You don't run up against these kind of conundrums when you deal honestly. You don't act irrationally when you act honestly. So Jesus pegged the problem in chapter 23. He said in verse 24 there, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Strain the gnat. Look, fellows, we can't put the money back into the treasury. It's illegal and swallow the camel. We're the ones that paid the money in the first place. So what did they do with the money? Well, they have to deal with it. They don't have any choice. It's not going to go away. So verses 7 and 8, they took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Now here is the great hypocrisy. The great hypocrisy, you know what it is? They took the money, and they did something charitable with it. They gave the money to charity. Now, someone asked me one time, should you tithe on lottery money? Would the church take lottery money? If you give that to charity, does that make it all right? What did they do? They took the money, and they bought a field to bury strangers in. Now, would you stay with me just a little bit longer as we look at this? I mean, this is, this is fascinating. It's too fascinating to pass up. The hole gets deeper. It looks like charity. But is this sweet innocence here? They bought a field to bury strangers in. Well, who are strangers? Well, most people believe that these would be Jewish proselytes. These are Gentiles. That means a Jewish proselyte is a Gentile who is converted to Judaism. And these Gentiles that had converted would come to Jerusalem from all other places of the world during the feast days. We see that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, that Jerusalem was filled with people from other parts of the world. On, in Acts chapter 8, in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, we see the same. People are in Jerusalem for the feast day. So it's inevitable that in these large crowds that would come to Jerusalem, sometime or another, somebody's going to die. I mean, the... the the journey's hard, it's dangerous in those days, and they don't have the medical care and things that we have. So people would be in Jerusalem when there would be thousands of them there. Surely somebody's going to die. That happens. Well, they're the strangers. They're non-native people. They're, they're not Jews. Now, they might be converts, they are, but they're Gentiles, and Gentiles are never good enough to bury in a Jewish cemetery. So they bought a field to bury these strangers in. Well, what about that field? Where is the field? What is this field? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, it's a 30 pieces of silver field. 
which means it's not very expensive. It's not, a, it's not a valuable field. In other words, not much of a field, not a valuable piece of property. It's called a potter's field. Well, what does that mean? Well, everybody knows what a potter is, don't you? Potter is somebody who molds things out of clay. Well, a potter's field would be a field that has a lot of clay in it. So the potter would own that field, and he would go, and he would take the clay out of the field, and he'd put it on his wheel and make his vessels and so forth. Well, this was a potter's field that's probably stripped of all of its clay. It was owned by a potter, but it's now been stripped of all the clay, so it has no value to him anymore, probably stripped down to the bare rock. And so it's very inexpensive, and so they're able to buy the potter's field, the one that's no good any longer. Well, where would the field be? Well, there are many people who believe it's right next to the Valley of Hinnom. Now, Hinnom, at the time of Jesus, was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And so Jesus often referred to Hinnom, or he did, which is Gehenna in the Greek. He referred to that as when he was speaking about hell. This is the place where the maggots are always, always crawling. When he talks about the worm that doesn't die, when he talks about the fire that's always burning, he's referring to the garbage dump of Jerusalem. That's where the maggots are always crawling over the garbage. That's where the fires of the garbage is always burning. And Jesus used the garbage dump of Jerusalem to picture hell. This is their act of charity. They brought a cheap field next to the garbage dump to bury strangers in who just happened to be converts to their religion. Aren't you glad that Jesus changed all of that? Aren't you glad that there are no more Jews and Gentiles in God's sight? Aren't you glad that the rich or the poor don't matter any longer? Your station in life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or the richest person in the world. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter. We're all one in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where you're buried, because when the rapture comes, we're all going up together. There is no first class, second class, or third class Christians. We're all going up together when Jesus comes. Well, they bought the field with the money, and I'm sure that they put a nice plaque in front of that field that said, this field was purchased by the people for ethical treatment of Gentiles. So they hoped that would settle the matter. It's out of their hands now. Soon all is forgotten. Well, they could only wish that it was all forgotten because the Bible says that this field gained fame. It was known as the field of blood. This is a field that's bought with blood money. The priest of Israel bought this field and that fact has been forever memorialized. What does the scripture say? Numbers 20, 32, 23, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Well, let me give you a little bit of information uh, that I want to share with you about what happened when Judas hanged himself. Now, the hanging is recorded in only two places of the Scripture, here in Matthew 27 and also in Acts chapter 1. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1, and I'll set you up for this while, we're looking, while you're looking for that that when the disciples chose a replacement for Judas, they were in the upper room just before the day of Pentecost. And, and I'll add some more information for you here, that the church did not begin on Pentecost. The church began with the calling of the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, and that's why you see Jesus referring to the church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. So here we find that the church is already in session, and they're having a business meeting, and Peter presides over the business meeting. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, 
The number of names together were about 120, so there's 120 disciples there. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and had obtained part of this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akeldama. That is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Now, verse number 18 says that this man purchased a field with reward of iniquity. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that Judas went directly and purchased the field. It was the money that belonged to him that the chief priest used to purchase the field. And look at the sad result of this, that Judas hanged himself, but even in death, Judas could not get it right. Now, one of the things, two things probably happened here, that Judas hanged himself and the rope broke, or the limb on which that rope was tied to the tree, the tree branch broke, and so what Judas must have done, he chose a tree that was next to the edge of the cliff there by the valley of Hinnom. And, and instead of a real nice, clean snap of the neck and his body dangling there, instead the rope broke, the branch broke or something, and the Bible says he fell headlong onto the rocks that were below. And, and this is not pleasant for Sunday morning before lunch, but it says his bowels gushed out. In other words, his intestines flowed out of his body when he hit those rocks. All the bowels came gushing out. That is a horrible ending to this awful crime. But you know, there's something that, that, that reminds us here. It's just strange that he betrayed Jesus and made him a curse by Jesus being put on a tree. And remember, the Bible says, curse to those that are hanged on a tree. So Jesus was crucified on a tree. And here is Judas who hanged himself on a tree, ending a cursed life. And do you remember what Jesus said before in the 26th chapter? He said, The Son of Man goeth, that is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for that man if he had not been born. Now going further into the Acts passage, Peter said, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric, that means his apostleship, let another take. Now that's a prophecy from Psalm 109. Now that leads me to our last observation today, and that is, number six, the scriptures sustained. Now how many times have we studied this, that everything that happens here was predicted hundreds of years before? In verse number 9 it says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you like to study the Bible, which I hope that you do, you might want to research this passage a little, because I don't have a lot of time to deal with it today. Time is limited. But this verse really poses a problem for some, because there are many people who do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's the conference that I just went to. It was all about the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible is the perfect Word of God. And so there are people that say, you can find many mistakes that are in the Bible. 
And this is one of the places that they cite because the quotation about 30 pieces of silver is not found in Jeremiah. It's in Zechariah. But Matthew says, Jeremiah spoke this. Well, here's what Zechariah said. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now there you see 30 pieces of silver. You find the potter. There's the casting of the silver into the house of the Lord. All of that is recorded in Matthew chapter 27. Now, regardless of where that quotation comes from, at least this part is remarkable, isn't it? That this is predicted 500 years before it happened, and it came true. But how did it get credited to Jeremiah instead of Zechariah? Well, we have three options for that. I'm going to give you the first two, and then I'm going to give you the right one. Option number one is that Matthew made a mistake, that he gave the wrong reference. And that's the one that Bible haters really like. There's a mistake in the Bible. Now, option number two is that we no longer have the original manuscripts of Scripture. There aren't any copies of that in existence. But there are, the originals are not in existence. But there are copies that have been made down through the years. Hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of copies of the Scriptures have been made. And so the assumption is that a, a scribe made a mistake here, that he meant to write Jeremiah, but he wrote, or Zechariah, but he wrote Jeremiah. Because if you look at those two words in the Greek, the difference between Zechariah and Jeremiah is one little tick on one letter. That's all that makes the difference in the spelling of the two. And so they say what happened is that a scribe hurriedly copied down the scriptures, he didn't go back to proofread it, and so the mistake shows up here in Matthew chapter 27. So those are two options that we have neither of which is correct. Now, we can't buy the, the, the idea that Matthew made a mistake or that a scribe made a mistake because then comes into question the infallibility of Scripture or the preservation of Scripture. Either one of those two or both come into, into question. So if we concede either of those positions, then we can't accept that the Holy Spirit actually gave us a reliable Bible. We can't count on the Bible being absolutely accurate because there are, in fact, mistakes in it. Well, those are the options that are accepted by the critics or the would-be critics. And you know who the would-be critics are. They're the ones who never read the Bible, but somebody else told them this is, the Bible's got a lot of mistakes in it. And we don't have any trouble dismissing the opinions of people that have never read the Bible. So is there a better explanation of this? Well, of course there is, because the Bible is always true. Because God inspired the Bible, and the Bible claims inspiration and God is perfect. Now, the first thing we have to understand, and I hope you do, is that the Bible is one overarching story. There are all kinds of bits and pieces that we gather from many different places of Scripture in order to get understanding of what the Bible has to say. For example, here in Acts 1, we read just a moment ago about, about Judas and his, uh, someone else taking his bishopric, we learned there where Peter got the authority to call the apostles together and say, we need to choose someone else to take Judas' place. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to come back to the earth to choose another apostle. So we have the authority of that, and Peter had the authority from reading the Old Testament scriptures. We go to places like Revelation, 
And there, as you read Revelation, you're going to find yourself often tracing down Old Testament references. And so you find out that John was not the first one to see a revelation of things that will happen in the future, but also other parts of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the very types, same types of things are recorded. So the Bible becomes an unfolding story. So we find references in many different places of Scripture. So we can go, in fact, to Jeremiah chapter 9, and there we find Israel, and we find a potter, and we find the valley of Hinnom that I just mentioned a moment ago, and we find wicked priests that are all complicit in evil. And all of that is going to come to judgment. Jesus said that it's all going to come to judgment. He talked about the priests in the New Testament era, and he said this whole religion is going to come crashing down. So what we find then is that Matthew knew more about Scripture than any of us is ever going to know. So he looked at the big picture and he saw the priest's actions are reflected in Jeremiah chapter 19. And then you'll also note this, that in the New Testament that Jesus referred to three divisions of Scripture. You remember this? He said there is the law, there are the prophets, and there are the Psalms. Three divisions of Scripture. Those cover... All the books of the Old Testament, law, prophets, and the Psalms. We have these broad categories that cover all the books of the Old Testament. Now, in the Jewish scroll, do you know what book stands at the head of the prophets? It's Jeremiah. So what Matthew did was to use a common convention of calling all the prophets by the designation of the prophet who stands at the head of the scroll. That's Jeremiah. So his scope is actually bigger than what's said in Zechariah. Now that's good information because when somebody comes and they say, well, there are mistakes in the Bible, the first thing that you should do is say, show me. Show me one of those mistakes. And do you know this, that most people are stuck right there? Because all they've heard is somebody else told them there are mistakes in the Bible. They heard what the skeptics say and they have no idea what's in the Bible. But I'm telling you, you can have confidence that the Bible is the Word of God. That the Bible has come down to us complete and trustworthy. We don't have to worry about whether this is actually the Word of God. Well, I need to close the message. What have we learned? What have we learned from these two messages? Well, there's been a lot of fact-finding, and some of the facts might interest you. They may not interest you, but part of explaining what the Bible means is to talk about the facts that are there, so we have to do that. But the important question for us is, why do we have this story here in this place? And the reason for that is contrast. The contrast is that Jesus was an innocent person. We have a perfect Jesus. And everyone from the priest to Judas to Pilate to the scribes to the elders to thieves to soldiers, everyone said that Jesus was innocent. He's innocent while at the same time everyone else is guilty. He's innocent. All of us are guilty. And that puts Jesus infinitely higher than anyone who's in this room or anyone who's ever lived. By whatever measurement you want to take, anywhere, anytime, anyhow, Jesus is absolutely perfect. Always innocent. And then a second reason, maybe a little bit more personal to us, and that is in chapter 26 at the end, it ends with Peter's bitter cry of true repentance. And then in chapter 27, it begins with this agonizing cry of conscience. And I'm telling you, folks, one of those is going to take you to salvation in the Lord. 
And the other one is going to take you to death at your own hand. Do you understand this? That one of those evangelical repentance, coming to Jesus Christ in repentance and believing in Him, that brings you to life everlasting. But an attack of conscience and having guilt and saying, oh, you know, I'm not such a good person after all, and I'm going to try to deal with this, and I'm going to try to do good things to make up for that, that is never going to work, and that is going to lead you to death at your own hand. And what I'm telling you is that whether you go to heaven or hell is in your hands today. Now, you, if you want to, you can, you can uh, deal with that and you can check me out on the theological implications if you want. Don't worry about that right now. If you're going to hell, you're going to hell because you choose to go there. And if you're going to heaven, you're going there because you have believed in Jesus Christ. And there aren't any other reasons than that. You either go to hell because you reject Him or you go to heaven because you have believed in Him. And don't worry about what happens in the background right now. Just understand this, that right now you stand between heaven and hell. That either you come to Jesus Christ with evangelical repentance, that means believing the gospel type of repentance, you come to him in that or you die and you go to hell. Now the question is, which are you? Well, which position are you in? Are you Peter or are you Judas? Are you Peter who comes with tears of genuine repentance and says to God, I am sorry that I've sinned against you. I have sinned against innocent blood. And God, forgive me of my sin and save me from my sins and take away the guilt of my heart. Come that way as Peter. Or you come as Judas with nothing but a guilty conscience. And you'll die and you'll go to hell. Which are you? Peter or Judas? That's why we have the story here. It's all about contrast. All about contrast. Which are you? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we think about this remarkable story in Scripture. How that Matthew stops right here in the interlude between the trials of Jesus. First by the Jews, then comes the trial by Pilate. And here, right between those two, is a declaration of the innocence of Jesus Christ and a comparison between what it means to truly trust him or to go our own way and die and go to hell. Lord, I pray that you'd open up some person's eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Show them that there is no way to get to heaven on their own. There is no good thing that they can do. The only one that we can trust to take us to heaven is Jesus Christ, the perfect, innocent Son of God. Please open someone's eyes to the gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.